and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 65, an age at which in many countries people retire. But this podcast isn't about to go into retirement, so like me, it will have to work for a few more years yet. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we have a nice long podcast for you this time around with three guests from around the world. We tend to think of weather and seasons in terms of our own surroundings, and today on the show are two people who live in the Southern Hemisphere, where it's summer, as opposed to here, where summer is a distant dream. Last year here in Western Scotland, I think some of us on a Thursday afternoon. It feels like this week has been the wettest ever. Going outside has been like showering with your clothes on, only without the shower gel. So, who's on the show this week? Well, we chatted with Nick Hammond, COO of New Zealand's Spring Sheep Milk Company. In the US, our reporter Beth Newhart spoke to Paul Zamiski, Executive VP of Global Sales and Innovation at Dairy Management Inc., or DMI. And in South Africa, we talked to Marietta Fermark, nutritionist and leader of the IDF Action Team on School Milk. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at INTL FC Stones Dublin branch. It's definitely been a busy week with computer glitches here and both Beth and I are headed to events next week. Beth is at the Winter Fancy Food Show in San Francisco where the 49ers will also be hosting the Green Bay Packers. I'm pretty sure Beth's not going to the game, although she might be able to connect it to dairy because of the Green Bay cheeseheads. But the Bay Area will definitely be a busy spot this weekend. While Beth is in San Fran, I'll be in Rimini in Italy. Google Rimini and you'll see lots of photos of the beautiful beach, sunshine, swimming and deck chairs. However, not in winter. It's going to be chilly, although I am told sunny. I'm not quite sure what that is anymore, so I'll let you know. I won't be in a t-shirt though. I do remember the first time I visited San Diego, which was also in January, and I'd flown in from Canada where it was minus 20 Celsius, and San Diego was plus 20, or around 68 Fahrenheit. I was definitely in a t-shirt, and a bit confused as to why people kept apologising for the fact it was cold. It's amazing how quickly we adjust to temperatures. Actually, I should tell you why I'm in Rimini. It's not for a holiday. It's for SIDJEP, the annual fair dedicated to pastry, bakery, coffee and gelato. So hopefully some videos and some podcast interviews from the event on the next show. Let's get to this week's news. We had stories on Veganuary, dairy alternative launches. Friesland Campina is kicking more cash in for its farmers to support sustainability. And in Norway, Tinna has temporarily backtracked on its cardboard pots, going back to plastic while it works out some kinks. And Zenith Global issued its annual report on mergers and acquisitions in 2019, which makes for some interesting reading and browsing, with dairy-related mergers and acquisitions up again. The UK's farming union, the NFU, said future trade policy is vital to the dairy industry as Brexit looms, and in the US, Borden received court approval following its bankruptcy. Fairlife has launched a creamer line, there are trade issues between the EU and Indonesia, and the trade deal between the US and China also makes the news. You can check out these and many more on dairyreporter.com. And so to this week's first guest. 
Nick Hammond is the COO of New Zealand's Spring Sheep Milk Company, which is headquartered in New Zealand, of course. But we spent oh, well over half an hour first talking about the wonderful city of Hamilton in New Zealand, about sport, about travel, about, well, lots of things. And then we finally talked about sheep milk, which fortunately is the bit that I recorded. So first, I asked for a bit of background on the company. So Spring Sheep is a high-growth nutrition business based in New Zealand that makes all of its products out of uh, beautiful New Zealand sheep milk. We have a fully controlled milk pool, which is a combination of our own farms and amazing supplier farmers. We then manufacture all our products through top-of-the-line New Zealand processing sites, uh, mainly based in the Waikato, which is an area we're continuing to expand. Uh, and we make them into particularly nutrition products. So full cream milk powder is one of our product lines, as well as a uh, recently launched infant formula line. Spring Sheep has two partners um, to the business. One is Pamu, which is a New Zealand state enterprise, and uh, it's a state enterprise that focuses particularly on farming, as well as uh, some of its own product lines. It's also half-owned by a group called SLC Ventures, which is a group of New Zealanders who believe in prime industry and investment in prime industry and have a very strong background in that area. Obviously, in that region, China tends to be seen as the holy grail, but there are also other huge markets as well. What's your strategy in that region? Yeah, so we during the early years of the business, uh, we started by focusing on Malaysia, Taiwan and Vietnam. As we've now increased our milk production significantly uh, over the last couple of years and have the ability to expand it very quickly um, in the future, we're now looking at other markets. So we'll be putting a lot of work into developing New Zealand and Australia and also looking at uh, China as well. China is a very large market, very nuanced. And I, I think anyone who views China as um, just one big market to sell one, one thing to every single person in China your business is made. But the reality is you've got to take a very strategic approach to how you develop your China market. And you've got to be very conscious about how you market your product and who you work with to develop those channels. And it's not just in physical stores anymore. There's also the online segment. So there are many different aspects to the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. There's been some huge growth in that in that, in that channel space, particularly um, the one everyone sort of seems to note is the um, singles day growth each year. But generally speaking, it's a um, massive opportunity for businesses like ours that have such a strong story of provenance and quality and um, a beautiful product line. Um, it just gives us more opportunities to get our product out there. And what products are you marketing currently? Yeah, I mean, sheep milk is, is an amazing um, dairy ingredient that you can make a lot of things from. Uh, where we've seen the main opportunity uh, for New Zealand sheep milk is in that nutrition space. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work understanding what the consumer drivers and where those opportunities are for New Zealand sheep milk. And what came through very strongly was particularly this concept around natural digestibility. We spoke to a lot of mothers in Asia from different countries, and the consistency was that they found natural digestibility was the main thing they were looking for for children underneath the age of eight. What that's meant for us as a business is we've focused on developing a nutritional range. We initially started with a whole milk powder product. We then developed into a probiotic milk powder product, which won the, um, uh, the Supreme Award at the New Zealand Food Awards a couple of years ago. Uh, we've now more recently, after doing extensive work over the last few years, uh, developed and launched our range of infant formula products under the Spring Sheet brand. And we had Dr. Amber Milan on the program last week talking about the properties of sheep milk and digestibility. Is that something that is easy to communicate or do you still have to educate people as to the properties of sheep milk? There's actually quite a good sort of latent understanding from consumers, particularly in Asia, around sheep and goat milk and its properties, particularly digestibility. 
So for us, it's important though that we actually have that strong science backing that up. So while there's a good consumer understanding now, we want to make sure we support that. And so doing the study that um, uh, Dr. Martin would have spoken to you about last week um, was really important for us to make sure we strengthen um, that story and actually prove it at a scientific level. Uh, when we started this journey, we had a lot of anecdotal conversations with consumers who said, look, I love sheep and goat milk because I can digest it very easily. We've then used that really to um, do our initial expansion. But over the last few years, we've done multiple smaller scientific trials to really prove that digestibility element. And the trial that you're referring to um, was one done at full human clinical level um, by the University of Auckland Liggins Institute and the Crown Research Institute's Ag Research. And so they took uh, 30 uh, young ladies who avoided drinking dairy typically and compared sheep versus cow's milk. And a really exciting piece that came out of that was that they said that the sheep milk protein was more readily digested and its fats were more easily converted to energy. Now, those are really, really important things for our consumers who are looking for a high-quality digestible protein and for fats that are really easily digested. This just means it's going to flow into their systems better. They're going to feel better from drinking it. And, of course, sheep milk does have all of the essential nutrients and vitamins in its composition as well. Exactly right. Yeah, the composition of New Zealand sheep milk is fantastic. It's um, about twice the protein, twice the calcium. It's high in a lot of other key vitamins and minerals. And we think part of that is to do with just we have a very high quality standard of our farms. Um, the animals are in very good condition. Uh, we're primarily grass-fed, very clean air. All these things add to making a beautiful, nutritious product. Before Christmas, we ran a story that you were looking for a strategic demand partner. Could you tell me what that involves and how that's progressing? Yeah, so as Spring Sheets continue to expand, the business is now looking for a strategic demand partner to grow with it. Uh, we've got the opportunity to expand significantly at a farming level and processing level in New Zealand. There's been a couple of drivers behind that growth. The main one was that while well, New Zealand's very good at cow dairy and very good at sheep, um, we haven't actually had a sheep milking industry here. One of the main barriers for that was we didn't actually have a large quantity of dairy sheep in New Zealand. And so recently we've been able to bring in uh, the top dairy genetics in the world and combine them into a specific dairy sheep for New Zealanders. And what this has meant is that now it's economically viable for New Zealand farmers to begin sheep milking. And with a significant amount of pressure on our cow dairy farmers, we're seeing a large amount of interest in converting to sheep. So essentially taking cow dairy operations that um, are pops possibly having quite a large environmental impact and aren't having a great economic return for the farmers, we're able to convert those into sheep milking operations pretty inexpensively and get them up and running very quickly and to a point where they reduce the environmental impact while also increasing economic opportunity for the farmers. And we actually had an open day last year uh, where we had over 400 people attend looking to get into sheep milking. So there's a huge interest from the farming community here. So for us at Spring Sheep, it's around matching that huge opportunity for New Zealand farmers with the right sheep demand partner uh, for us to continue that growth trajectory. You mentioned how the sheep farming is more sustainable. Is that something that the government is taking a look at in terms of how it can reduce its overall carbon footprint? Yeah, I mean, like, like all countries in the world, there's a, there's a huge, huge focus um, on the environmental impact of the farming systems. So one of the useful things that we've had as an industry in New Zealand is the Ministry for Primary Industries has supported um, the development of the industry through um, what's called a Primary Growth Partnership Fund. And this has enabled us to invest significantly in R&D, um, which is focused on creating an economically, socially and environmentally sustainable sheep milk industry. 
So as a result, we've been able to spend a bit more time researching, particularly on that environmental piece, how we can reduce the environmental impact of our farming systems. And but like anything, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, we're still putting a lot of work into that space, but it's definitely something we're considering. And how many processing plants do you have at the moment? We have one at the moment. We use one based in Hamilton, uh, which is a smaller scale spray dryer. We've recently had the opportunity uh, to move into a larger spray dryer, also based in Hamilton, right next to the existing site. And what this enables um, the sheep milk industry in New Zealand, and particularly spring sheep, to do is to expand significantly over the next few years. Uh, and that dryer is really set up to be you know, a top-of-the-line nutritional spray dryer. So it's exactly the right piece of processing um, equipment we need for our growth. And is the processing close to the farms that you source your milk from? Yeah, it's critical for our quality that our farms are within close range of our of our processing site. So we pretty much all of our farms are within a very small space of that processing facility, which just means the milk isn't travelling for as long. It's not getting warm. Um, we just maintain that really high quality. Do you have any plans to increase your product portfolio or is it really just a question of continuing to grow what you have right now? Yeah, so the focus at the moment is that we've, um, you know, we've developed a very good range of products, which we'll be focusing on pushing those out. Um, there's so much opportunity in this space, particularly as we continue to find and prove that sheep milk is more digestible um, and creating that opportunity for consumers to have a nutritious product. So there's lots of different formats we can explore in the future. The key focus right now is on, is on the product range we have. So what does 2020 hold for your company and also for the sheep milk industry in New Zealand? Yeah, so for got a few quite exciting ones for spring sheep this year. We'll be um, doubling the number of milking sheep that we have, and that'll be through a number of new supplier farmers based around the Waikato in New Zealand. So um, very exciting to be bringing, bringing those groups on. We'll continue to see um, genetic gains in our dairy sheep flock. So we've been working on developing a very strong dairy flock in New Zealand um, for the last sort of five or six years using imported genetics and then combining those uh, to create a New Zealand dairy sheep uh, and that's been incredibly effective so we look to see that growing. We have that new spray dryer will be commissioned in the first half of 2020 as well so we'll be able to double our processing capacity immediately and continue to grow that significantly over the next few years and then on the market end uh, launching our infant formula product into a number of countries um, particularly New Zealand, Australia uh, and looking at a few other uh, countries in Asia for that product line. Very exciting time for the industry at the moment. Um, there's lots of very uh, strong macro drivers why it's um, growing so quickly. And the key one really is that there's been a huge growth in sheep and goat infant formula consumption um, over the last few years. But it is very challenging to find um, high quality sheep and goat milk ingredients globally. And so that's where we've got a really interesting advantage at Spring Sheep is that we have a very strong control over our milk pool and we can actually ensure that it has very high quality. And then the Waikato is one of the hubs in the world where we've got a, a lot of very high quality um, processing sites as well as very capable people. So it essentially means we can produce a very high quality product. Next, Beth Newhart talks to Paul Zemiski, Executive VP of Global Sales and Innovation at Dairy Management Inc. about how the milk sector can grow and about the recent bankruptcies in the U.S. dairy industry, and a whole lot more. I think from a big picture, you know, we keep underestimating, and you think that you hear out there and you look on the news and media that, you know, dairy is declining both domestically and globally, and in fact, it's the opposite. You know, I think people are just 
we need to do a better job conveying that dairy is a powerhouse. When you look at the power of nutrition, taste, the experience, the transformational capabilities of all the end products, you know, it's dairy's growing consumption and, and household penetration on a global footprint, you know, with an established economies and emerging places, you know, like Africa and Asia is demanding dairy and all kinds of different footprints from milk from cheese, you know, the, the, all the different yogurt and drinkable beverages that the teas, milk teas, to then you start to get closer to our environment. You know, Central America, Latin America, the, the presence of dairy uh, is growing. And, then, and you, then you get to the U.S., and, and people forget, and they're, they're focused on one part of dairy, and it's just the fluid milk component, and I'll get to that. But when you look at total dairy in the U.S., when you add all the elements of dairy in the U.S., when you think about cheese and yogurt, milk, you think about the snacking components, you know, with the Sargento balance breaks. You start to look at areas that sometimes people forget it's dairy, but like Ensure and those nutrition beverages, that's a $100 billion segment when you add all those up, ice cream and all, all those elements that are majority dairy. That's $100 billion and growing. And, you know, so from a, my macro perspective, you know, dairy is still a powerhouse and has tremendous upside in consumption on a, a domestic and global footprint. I mean, if you look at the last 10 years, the, the per capita in, in the U.S., I think we've added another 10 pounds of, of consumption or something like that, you know, per capita consumption and through cheese and butter. You know, butter's at a 50-year high consumption. You know, cheese continues to grow, in, you know, at food service, at retail, and so when we talk about the health of the category, there's you know, the majority of the segments are growing domestically. It's, you know, we're, it's still in early stages of development in developing countries. And so I think, you know, as we talk to the industry, the, the major challenge and things I see in dealing with the, you know, I deal with a lot with the buyers and VPs of merchandising at retail. I deal with the leaders of food service. And the dairy industry themselves aren't telling that story. They're in there focusing on their own brands and their own product, and they need to do a better job of laddering up to educate the, the leaders of food service and retail of the power of dairy and the opportunity of dairy first and how we can transform and continue to drive consumers to their stores, their restaurants, et cetera, than, than just, hey, I'm launching a new line extension and I need space. I mean, we're, we need to be bigger thinking in, in the category and bigger communications in the category on that as we educate the industry and media, as we educate the power brokers um, for the category. So do you think that there's a difference between the Dean Foods bankruptcy and the Borden bankruptcy? I mean, how would you categorize them? Well, yeah, you, you look at the, the firms, and, you know, there's really, I, I call it three players in play. First one, you know, Dean's, they took some powerhouse local brands, 13 family-owned farms, and merged it into one national brand at a time where local was starting to become relevant and important. You know, consumers are talking about what companies are doing to give back to their community, you know, where, where their products are coming from and made. And, you know, Dean's made that strategic maneuver was it at the expense of the consumer or was it more to drive synergies and costs? And then you look at their asset base. They were really synergizing their asset base. You know, from my area, of, I'm an old marketing finance guy. It's really to take the um, complexity out of the operation system. But you, you, a lot of those decisions were made at putting, I'll call it operations and finance first versus the consumer first. 
you know, now you have new leaders coming in at, at Dean's and saying, how do I position this organization for the future and, and start to think about the consumer and make up for decades of where they didn't invest and put the consumers first. Borden, you have a new group of leaders who come in, uh, they're aligned vision, but also that, you know, as they look at their asset base, as they look at the state of the brand, they too have inherited similar, I'll call it legacy challenges, whether it's pensions, whether it's asset base. And so you've got two new leadership groups saying, how do I transform these brands to make the portfolio and the brand more relevant with consumers today? And relevancy is the key thing. You know, if you look at anybody in marketing, it's about making sure your product stands out and is current and you've got the packaging and all that all the portfolio to deliver on that. And so I think those two players, Borden's probably more of a financial transaction. You know, they were investing. They want to invest and grow faster. And Dean's has this massive asset base and is stuck in the middle. You know, when you look at fluid milk, where, where a majority of their dollars and volume was, they're getting squeezed by retailers and, and retailers' investment in, in, in the category to vertically integrate. And they're on the high side, they're getting hurt by investment by brands. You know, Fairlife launched, Horizon invested, Organic and Valley invested, local brands are investing, you know, Lactate's investing, and, and Dean's was trying to struggle on what they do and how they rebuild that brand. And so, you know, they're, they're looking at both reorganizing for the future in, in slightly different ways. And then if you look at, like, a, I, I think Fairlife and Coke recognized the, the opportunity of what was missing in the category, and that was putting the consumer first, investing in, you know, a true marketing bundle of features and benefits, you know, on top of existing milk, which is a powerful nutrition source, but added features and benefits like, you know, more, more protein, lower sugar, you know, and improved packaging, graphics, storytelling of what the consumers are looking for today, right? The backstory of, of a brand, the history, what the ownership is doing to support the community. They put that whole powerful bundle together and view milk as a powerful ingredient, nutrition source, and taste benefit. And they've proven that, you know, in the you know, first four years, they're hitting $500 million in sales and paying almost $10 a gallon. And Fairlife's a good case example of looking at what milk, look what water has done and coffee has done. Look at the margin of coffee today from where it was, you know, 25 years ago. It was a race to the bottom, and that's what happened to milk. You know, phase one of water was putting it in plastic. Phase two, now look at the transformation of water. People are paying $50 a gallon for water. People are seeing value and in innovation, but you've got to have the innovation in taste, flavor, function. And, and it, they're willing to pay for that. And it, it, milk, we're just starting to tap it. We have to think differently as we look at these categories and, and help the processors and help the farmers understand how to balance the innovation for value and function versus just chasing the cheapest volume, which is just, you know, you, when you think about building a plant today, are you building a beverage plant for the future? You, you think about... We're, we're, these other categories are growing. 90% of growth in beverage in other categories outside of milk is not in a gallon. It's single-serve grab-and-go domestically and globally. And so we have to think differently if we're going to continue to turn this category around. What do you think milk brands and milk pr processors can do to innovate and to stay relevant and kind of keep up with all these other beverage categories? Uh, again, it's really start to look at 
you can't just put volume first. When you look at all these emerging categories, the growth comes from you know smaller consumer bases and starts to build. And I think the opportunity here is to really start to look at new functions, benefits, flavors, and experiences. You know, ninety-two uh, percent of fluid milk sales is still chocolate. Go look at kombucha. Go look at water. Like I like I said, and all these different flavor experiences. And, and also go look at the packaging innovation there. Um, it's not the gallon. It's much more form and function. And so I think for fluid milk to, to transform, think of it as a, uh, a beverage foundation uh, and delivery vehicle. Ready to drink coffee is a perfect example. You know, 50 to 60 percent of ready to drink coffee is fluid milk. You know, those different coffee beverages. You, you think about nutritional beverages, as I said, Ensure, Pediasure, again, dairy-based nutrition beverages. They need to start to go look at consumer need states, the occasions and develop products for that versus trying to form fit the gallon into everything and white milk into everything. Number two, also think of usage. Fluid milk is in 94% of the households. You're not going to get more household penetration. So you need to increase usage, make it with milk. You know, so communicate different usages to transform these categories. I can't find a milk package out there that conveys using a milk to make smoothies, but I can go find all these alternatives with oat, with almond, that shows usage on their package. So the category's got to get much more consumer-centric in their messaging, marketing of usage and innovation to do that. There's the obvious question of the plant-based alternatives that's been a conversation for a long time, and it's not going away. So do you think that they're really having an impact on fluid milk consumption and sales? Are they actually the threat that they're kind of being made out to be? Now, I'll do the math for you. I think what, I haven't seen the final 2019 numbers, but this is rough numbers where we were at in uh, December. You know, fluid milk was down about, about 120 million gallons. Plant was up about 10. You could eliminate the plant-based category, we would be down 110 million gallons. So 90% of our declines are coming because majority of consumers don't even know they're declining the consumption. They're buying a little bit less each time. So they may be trading down from a gallon. Or, you know, when they're running 99-cent gallon promotions, instead of buying two gallons, they're going to buy one this time, waiting and thinking there's going to be another hot deal. We've got to get out of the dealing and, again, increase the value. So the, the opportunity, though, really where we're losing are those two categories I talked about who've invested dramatically over the last decade, water and coffee. Water is about... 60% of the declines, coffees over 15. So those combined are 75%. But you know what else is growing because coffee's growing? Creamers. They're putting cream in their milk versus coffee. Look at the investments that have taken place in the creamers the last five years. Nestle's Bliss, you know, and a lot of other products out there. You know, Fairlife launched a milk, now Fairlife launched a creamer. You know, a lot of other creamer innovation taking place. So where there's investment in identifying usage, you see those segments grow. And, and, and also ready-to-drink coffee, again, folks are looking at the decline of milk at retail. 25% of the decline in milk at retail is because the, co- the cereal categories are eroding to bars and other on-to-go beverages. And so we are seeing growth in fluid milk as an ingredient in the coffee channel because of the consumer buying habits and cha- you know, changes there. So that when you talk about plant-based specifically, you know, we when you look at our math, it's around seven to eight percent 
of our declines or the plant-based, but guess what? They're not, it's households not leaving milk. What they've done is they've added an incremental purchase of plant-based to that. And, and you think about why they want more flavor and more variety. And if the milk folks aren't going to introduce an almond-flavored milk, because the consumers want more flavor in milk outside of, like I said, 92% chocolate, if you're not going to give them oat-flavored milks, they're going to go and explore. You can't stop the consumer. That's one thing. A marketer can't stop. You know? And so we're starting to do things to work with the brands in the industry to create products that consumers are looking for. It seems like rocket science, but it's not. You just got to listen to the consumer and identify things and invest. And so we've, we're testing things with Dairy Farmers of America and our Liberal Farms brand, where it's a combination of milk and a combination of almond. So, you know, things like that, you know, you got to test and learn and see if that's consumers. But, you know, it's a powerful, more high-powered nutrition package, more than you'll get from almond, which we know is all additives on the nutrition side versus milk. You've got the natural protein and, and calcium and all that that comes from it. Do you anticipate that there will be any more bankruptcies in 2020, you know, or in the near future? If Dean Foods and Borden were kind of based in strategy, do you think others will you know, take a similar path. When you look at fluid milk, almost 70% of the volume going through retail now is retailer branded product. So then after that, the next biggest, so the top brand in milk today is Walmart, 25 share. Number two brand in milk is Kroger at 15 share. The number three brand is Beans at, at, at down to, you know, 12 share. Number Four brands, then you start to. I mean, you're, then you're into Aldi, Costco, and then Prairie Farms, and that's five share. Borden's share is probably a one or two share. The guys who are driving the category today are the retailers, and you know, for us to win as a category, we have to work with the retailers and inspire them on how to grow. And so, there's a lot of things we're doing between us and our peer company, Milk Pep, and working with the brands in the industry. And the good news is the brands in the industry have invested in a lot of new marketing and sales leadership to start to bring some of the traditional CPG type of thinking to the category that, that was absent for so long of putting the consumers first. And so, like, for instance, category management. Here's a fun fact for you. Over the last five years, value-added milk, so you look at value-added milk, you add in organic, you add in the high-protein, you know, you add in flavored, lactose-free, you know, the DHA, that dollar growth has been bigger than plant-based over the last five years. And the price per unit is bigger than plant-based. The velocity is five times plant-based. But no one's telling the retailer. So the retailer is carving out space for plant-based thinking that that's where they're going to get their growth from. When you have a powerful segment of dairy, the only thing that's declining in fluid milk is the the fat-free and the, the skim and, you know, the 2% because consumers are looking for more taste. So they're trading the whole milk. They're looking for functions and benefits and things like that. And so we, when you know what your challenge is, you know you've only got a pocket that's driving the declines, but you've got this powerful growth pocket. If you use category management, that's where you educate the category on how to grow. And, and then you go to the retailers and say, hey, this is opportunity investment areas for you in flavor and packaging and consumer function, you know, in areas of the store that the consumers are looking for, grab and go. You know, Kroger has an 80-foot grab and go run that's in their planogram. 
try to find fluid milk because we've let the CSD, you know, the, carb the carbonated soft drink guys own that. So you'll find a little bit of the Fairlife grab and go, but that's 80 feet where there's four feet of coconut and maple water, which has, you know, less than 1% of consumer beverage occasions. And here we are at milk at a 20% of consumer beverage occasions. We're not at the point where consumers are looking for it now and grab and go. So that we've got to win with assortment. We've got to win with packaging, marketing, advertising. You know, there, it's a bundle of features that we've got to bring. This industry has been so focused, and when I say industry fluid milk, I'm meeting with the retailer once, and the retailer wants to just grab share from each other. And we've got to transform that and educate the retailer how they can grow with fluid dairy. So there, there's significant room for upside in the category. And you'd ask, how do we continue to win? Is, you know, the industry working together from the farmer to the processor to the brands, identifying these growth pockets, you know, the consumer meeting consumer needs, and then proving to, you know, these end users from retailer to e-commerce to food service of how we can grow with the category. And now we go to South Africa to talk to Marietta Famark, nutritionist and leader of the IDF Action Team on School Milk, about the origins of the School Milk program, how these programs have grown, and how the IDF fits into the picture. The history of the official School Milk programs can be traced back almost 100 years. These programs were originally created as a social safety net to support nutritional valuable, but also food insecure children. And over the years, the school milk program has been introduced in many countries across the world, with many of these programs running for decades. And to mention a few examples, in the 1920s, milk clubs that provided milk to schools across the county of London flourished. And in 1934, the UK launched its first official milk in school scheme. And that is still going because figures in 2018 show that an estimated 16.6 million children in the UK participated in the food, vegetable and milk scheme for schools that year. The school milk programs also have a long history in the US. In 1940, the first federally funded school milk program for low-income students was implemented in 15 schools in Chicago. And by 1946, the program had been incorporated into the National School Lunch Program of the US. This program was open to all students and it required that the students should get milk or an alternative dairy product every day as part of the school lunch program. And more recently, it was documented that during the 2015 financial year, 30.5 million students in the US participated in the national school lunch program and 14 million of those students benefited from a school breakfast program. And in Japan, as part of the school lunch program, the inclusion of skim milk promoted by UNICEF started in 1949. The program gained wide public support following physical improvements seen in children who participated, compared with those who did not. Today, the current Japanese school lunch program still includes milk. And if we shift the focus to developing countries, such as China, Thailand, Bangladesh, and Sudan, it was documented that 21.5 million students received milk as part of the school nutrition program in 2018. Some of those places that you mentioned are quite warm. Are there any distribution issues in any of them? 
Yes, if we look at Bangladesh and India, they actually have local women that um, distribute the milk to the different schools and that is mostly fresh. But in many of the other countries, Tetra Laval is very much involved and then UHD milk is always the safest way of uh, distributing. So we see that the 200 more portion is, the 250 more portion is basically the standard size of, you know, portion. It's most of the time UHD milk. And what's the IDF's role in school milk programs? Well, in 1998, the FAO Commodities and Trade Division conducted a survey together with members of the IDF International Milk Promotion Group um, to determine the current situation of milk in schools around the world. At that stage, 36 countries responded to the survey. And the findings show that school milk represented 3.25% of the milk market and was mainly supported through public funding. Initially, the purpose of the survey did not include information on the nutritional impact of milk in schools, but several questions began to probe for this effect. And the results of uh, this survey were published in the IDF Bulletin in 1999. And then in 2013, the IDF decided to update the survey to gain insight into actual implemented school milk programs. The data were compared to those in 1998 and allowed for unique analysis trends in school milk programs. These results were published in 2015. And then six years later, in 2019, the IDF decided to re-evaluate its members' participation in school milk programs. In collaboration with one of the largest providers of school milk programs worldwide, that is Tetra Laval, the questionnaires were distributed through organizations worldwide. In addition to the questions about the implementation of school milk programs, the 2019 survey also explored the scientific data supporting the nutritional role of milk and other dairy products as part of these programs. And what were the goals of the 2019 survey? Well, the aim of the survey was not to compare data to the two previous studies, but rather describe the current nature and scope of the school milk programs in different countries, states and cities throughout the world and to better understand the drivers of and the barriers to effective provision of milk in schools. Um, the IDF also aimed to compare with uh, feasible the development of school milk programs worldwide. And the survey consisted of two parts. The first was to collect data on the overall scope and nature of the different programs, while the second part aimed to obtain insight into the operational aspects of the different school milk programs around the world. The assessment expanded its target focus to also include general school feeding programs, and that is a big difference to the previous two, in which milk is offered rather than focusing exclusively on school milk programs. A survey like this also creates opportunity to countries to learn from one another and um, share success stories and challenges. I would imagine that those challenges vary greatly around the world, some of which probably are economic as well. Absolutely, economic, uh, you know, uh, problems as well as distribution, you know, those are common problems that uh, that we experience. And lately with milk alternatives or what we prefer to refer to plant-based beverages and the whole issue of moving towards a more plant-based diet, we find that there's other types of beverages that's also been available or, you know, sold at the different schools in tuck shops or so. So, um, yes, there's, there's quite a few challenges that uh, we have to overcome, and I think we can learn a lot from each other. And what was the target audience for the survey? 
Well, the main objective was to collect data from all the IDF member countries. However, to estimate that the total number of countries implementing school milk programs worldwide and the number of children benefiting from these programs, additional data were collected with the help of Petra Laval. At the end, a total of 62 questionnaires were considered for the survey, representing 55 countries. The complete analysis, including the data from Petra Laval, showed that 159 million children in a total of 62 countries benefit uh, from school milk programs. And the majority of the programs target children between the ages of 5 and 11 years, which represent an important period of growth and development. Children and adolescents are key periods for health and development interventions that will have a lasting productive impact on future generations' well-being. And most programs are run with support from the dairy industry, such as farmers, processors, dairy associations, and of course government. The survey showed that these programs are valuable opportunities for multidisciplinary collaboration that involves both the public and the private sector. It can impact lives in several areas, including the alleviation of hunger, to advance nutritional intake for improved health, to generate employment opportunities, and to promote access to education. And I would suspect that these programs and the amount of involvement from governments, etc., also changes depending on the country. Uh, How does the IDF work with the different countries to promote these programs? I think that is very much the purpose of providing this information as well, so that countries that do not have this kind of program can uh, learn from others. And also, you know, some countries, you know, smooth out all the major problems. And then, you know, if you do struggle specifically, say, with something like funding, uh, one can see, on, you know, how other countries is running it and can learn from that. And you mentioned all of the most recent survey with the number of countries. It's clearly a program that over the last, what, 50, 60 years has certainly, or even what longer than that, has certainly grown. Over that period of time, it gives you a lot of data. Have you seen benefits of school milk programs in schools over that time? Absolutely. And remember, I said right in the, the very first, 1998, there were only 36 countries that responded to the questionnaire. And if we look at what we've done now, we had a total of 62 countries, the information from 62 countries. And if we look at the benefits of the school milk programs in school, support of these programs stemmed from recognizing milk and milk products as a nutritional advantageous food for children owing to the unique nutrient profile of dairy. Milk and dairy products provide an abundant supply of high-quality protein and micronutrients such as calcium, phosphorus, potassium, iodine, and vitamin A, B2, B12, and obviously vitamin D in most countries. The unique, unique package of essential nutrients in dairy products contribute to addressing all forms of malnutrition. And regular intake of milk and dairy products has been widely shown to associate it with better growth, better micronutrient status, better cognitive performance and motor function development in children. I mean, the school environment can also have a major impact on attitudes towards food, as well as encouraging healthy eating habits. And now that you have all of this data, how do you get that out there? In March 2020, the IDF will publish an extensive report on this survey. 
the bulletin will include a comprehensive literature review uh, to create a solid theoretical framework for understanding the nutritional impact of school meal programs, as well as the results of the questionnaire-based survey. The report will explore findings about um, implementation, administration, promotion, and nutritional importance of school meal programs. And it promised to be an invaluable source of information for managers of school milk programs worldwide. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets. And for the next couple of weeks, it's with Charlie Highland at INTLFC Stones Dublin branch. Okay. Hi, Jim. It's quite a, quite a busy week here from the uh, from information perspective and, and dairy. Um, we've had a lot of data releases, which I think people have been waiting for. A couple of ones that are important. Uh, we've had full numbers out from kind of November EU milk production. And there it looks like uh, numbers have been a little bit better than, than forecast, up from a milk solids perspective at 1.2%. In terms of uh, milk production growth, headline number is 0.6, but the solids continue to be quite strong in Europe. We've also had some production numbers come in, in from New Zealand, which were up about 0.4% year on year on a solids basis. Um, so all in all, things looking pretty okay uh, from a milk production perspective and uh, nothing too so surprising. Um, we've also had uh, numbers come out from exports uh, point of view, especially from Europe where there we've seen kind of EU exports down a little bit uh, from year on year, which a um, little bit surprising, but actually it's not really when you dig into the numbers. Most of the reduction was on the skim milk powder, which is coming off a very high export number from last year. Um, and when you do look at um, you know the overall picture, it does still look like the demand in the world market is still quite good, still positive year on year. So nothing too surprising there. Um, there's also been likes of an Algerian tender this week, where about 64,000 tons were tendered. So so good quantities there. Again, showing good uh, good buying demand on the world market. A um, couple of things to watch out for in the coming week. We have a GDT coming up, which will is always a good gauge for where the global demand is. So we're watching that one quite closely. Um, at the moment, the NZX futures are fork, are pointing to the GDT increasing by about 1.2%. You know, that's, it would be another good sign of strong global demand if, if those numbers come in close to there. So we'll keep a close eye on that next week. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for this week. While we do have a couple of interviews set up for next week, we may have some interviews from SIGEP or the Winter Fancy Food Show or both. Or neither, if Beth goes to the football game instead and I go to a different kind of football game. Or if either of us run into some technical difficulties with recording, which occasionally happens. I've been to events before where I come back and the recordings are gone. That's my excuse anyway. I can't say I'm particularly looking forward to a two-hour drive to a different airport, two flights, a bus into Bologna and a train to Rimini. But I suppose it goes with the territory. I just hope I remember all my recording equipment. All right, until next time, I hope you have a great week and that you enjoyed the podcast. And, as always, thanks for listening.